and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The special surprise today is that class will be taught by the Hughes, Richard and Jan. I'll introduce Richard because I know him a little bit better. Um, Richard teaches with me at Lipscomb, and he's become very quickly a dear colleague. He's taught uh, at Pepperdine, had a distinguished career there, and at Abilene Christian, and he had a distinguished career there, and uh, at Messiah College, and he had a distinguished career there, and now he's already begun a distinguished career at Lipscomb. Um, I'm really excited today because although I've heard Richard talk a lot, and it's been good, I hear all the time from my first-year students who've been privileged to sit in one of their first-year classes for baby freshmen about how absolutely wonderful that class was and how it made them think. And so I'm delighted to introduce Richard and to be able to sit here and listen to Jan today um, share their wisdom with us. The, the class that, uh, that Matt referenced is a class that Jan and I team teach at Messiah College called Learning to Tell Our Stories. And we're going to do some storytelling today. Jan is going to teach the bulk of this. I'm just going to say a few words to kind of lead into this. Let me, first of all, try to connect what Jan is going to be doing with what we've been doing this entire semester. So we've been doing something pretty unusual for Churches of Christ. I mean, looking at that great theological tradition that we haven't known much about, most of us, for over the course of our history. And the question, of course, is why have we not known? Why, why have we been so uh, really ignorant of that, of that? And, of course, you know the reason. I mean, the reason is, from the very beginning of the 19th century, our commitment was to restore primitive Christianity and everything since Jesus and the Apostles we viewed as essentially irrelevant. So why would we pay attention to the Apostles' Creed? Why would we pay attention to the Nicene Creed? Why would we pay attention to Augustine or Aquinas or Luther or Kirchner or Bart? I mean, these are the doctrines of men. Maybe that's the way we typically framed it. But we're discovering that there has been a consensus among Christians over the, all these centuries. Jan is going to begin with a story that really gets at this very point. So, Jan. I hope my voice does not betray me. I'm dealing with allergies. <clears throat> the shouting stones. And can everyone hear Jan in the back? Raise your hand if you can't hear me. Or move up front. Move up closer. Because I can't speak. There are lots of chairs up front this Sunday. You know, I would suggest... I would suggest that since Jan is struggling a little bit with she's had a little congestion, why don't you, there's a lot of the chairs up, let's just fill in the, up close, and then you'll be able to hear. The Shouting Stones. We built our churches plain, unadorned. We actively discouraged personal narratives of faith. We're intensely wary of words like witness and testimony. We were hesitant to identify any way in which God was working in our lives other than in the singular act of salvation. 
We ignored the history of Christians who lived after the close of the canon. We knew neither their names nor their stories. We disregarded their art, a manifestation of belief and an act of creativity. Whether it took the form of painting, sculpture, needlework, literature, or music, we existed as perpetual pioneers. It was the Bible and us, Jesus and us. All else was irrelevant, inappropriate, and perhaps even idolatrous. Yes, we built our churches plain, unadorned. The only painting would have been a baptistry scene painted by a local or itinerant artist, most of whose identities are lost to us today. Typically, the painting was a romantic representation of a river, often the River Jordan. The river flowed from mountains through a lush valley and seemed to flow right into a small baptismal pool located just behind and beneath the pulpit. A dove was sometimes seen hovering in the clouds, but no human form was represented. Jesus and John the Baptist were assumed, but not seen. The painting was meant to connect us with Jesus' own baptism. As we were immersed in those waters, we were skipping over the centuries and flying over geography into the Jordan River itself. Today, even those paintings have mostly disappeared in favor of curtains or shutters or a stained glass panel. In most of the newer buildings, the baptistry is barely noticeable, a cleverly disguised architectural feature. And then we walked in England. We poked our heads into the intimate spaces of scores of small stone churches where the stained glass light carried all the colors of the rainbow. We learned bits and pieces about those who had come before. On the floors of the churches, we read the names of the faithful, names almost worn smooth by the steps of those who had followed. We picked up small kneeling cushions lovingly stitched in needlepoint by countless now unseen hands. And no matter what day of the week, or how remote or how small the church, there were almost always flowers, fresh flowers, lovingly gathered from someone's cottage garden. When we walked through the ancient nail-studded doors towards the car, we traversed not a parking lot, but a centuries-old churchyard, and we found more names, names engraved on simple stones. And the stones seemed to say, I lived in this village too. I sat in those pews. I died in this village. My wife lies beside me. My children are all about me. Someday you will join us. We are indeed surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. When we walked into Wells Cathedral, an Anglican church in the smallest city in all of England, a church dedicated in 1283, but begun in 1170. We were awed by its beauty and majesty. But it was the chapter house that became our lasting and most poignant memory. It was the stone staircase that led from a corridor to a place where the monks met for prayer and praise. 
the steps were not parallel. They were not straight. They were not even. Each one was shaped like a gentle slalom slope, carved into a virtual U by the thousands upon thousands of soft leather soles that had walked up those stairs for gatherings of worship and contemplation. The cloud of witnesses was beneath our very feet. And when we traveled in Italy and walked in the Renaissance cities and towns of Tuscany, we found glimpses of the biblical story all around us, brushed onto canvases with oil paint, sculpted in stone, illustrated in luminous stained glass windows. Sometimes the scene was a mixture of long ago and today, and at first glimpse seemed anachronistic. The baby Jesus lies in a manger on the fringe of what looks like an Italian hill town. The Virgin Mary seems to be dressed in Renaissance garb, but the story has been brought home to where the people live. The sacred story has become a familiar tale with recognizable and accessible characters. Great artists emblazoned the ceilings of the churches with murals and mosaics that told the stories, so that both the Old and New Testament characters hovered over the worshipers as they prayed. Sculptors spent an entire lifetime carving biblical scenes to line the walls of a worship space. Even if you were illiterate, even if you could not read a single word, you could walk through these spaces and hear echoes of the story. Because we grew up unadorned, alone in history, wary of both icon and idol, we have little sense of the lives of early Christians. Several years ago, while driving down the streets of beautiful San Marino, California, heading for the Huntington Library, I noticed a church with the name Saints Felicitas and Perpetua Catholic Church. And I made a rather inane remark to my husband, Richard. I believe it was whoever they were. I assumed that he too would find their names rather unusual and obscure. But to my amazement, Richard did know who they were. To my shame, I did not. Because we said we rejected the creeds of men, we chose to ignore, disregard, and diminish the carefully penned words by and about 20 centuries of people who lived lives of great faith. And in spite of the fact that we said that all of us are saints, we ignored the stories of great martyrs of the faith. We were wary of noticing anyone who lived between canon and contemporary. Which one of you knows the story of Perpetua and Felicitas, late of Carthage, North Africa? Two, three. These young women were among the early Christian martyrs, put to death on March 7, 203, over 1,800 years ago. Perpetua was a 22-year-old woman of noble birth, mother of an unweaned child. Her pagan father begged her to renounce her faith and live. Felicitas, 
a young slave woman arrested when seven months pregnant, was put to death just after the birth of a daughter at the beginning of her eighth month of pregnancy. They, along with several Christian men, were put to death in an, in an arena of wild animals and finished off by the sword. Perpetua's account of their travails and their sustaining faith is one of the earliest writings of a Christian woman. I should have known their story. Because we are a story-formed community, we need, as an act of hospitality, to entrust the stories of our pilgrimage with others and invite both strangers and fellow pilgrims to share their stories with us. I should know your story, and I should freely share my own. In Barry Lopez's book, Crow and Weasel, Badger said, Remember only this one thing. The stories people tell have a way of taking care of them. If stories come to you, care for them and learn to give them away where they are needed. Sometimes a person needs a story more than food to stay alive. That is why we put these stories in each other's memory. This is how people care for themselves. But we actively discouraged personal narratives of faith and were intensely wary of words like witness and testimony. We were hesitant to identify any way in which God was working in our lives other than in the singular act of salvation. We ignored the history of Christians who lived after the close of the canon. We knew neither their names nor their stories. We existed as perpetual pioneers. It was the Bible and us, Jesus and us. All else was irrelevant, inappropriate, and perhaps even idolatrous. But Jesus said to those who tried to silence the joyful, praise-filled voices of his disciples, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Perhaps the stones are shouting. Perhaps it's time for us to listen. I want to introduce a concept very briefly that I don't think we've talked about so far in this class, the idea of sacrament. We haven't really done anything with that, have we? Not this semester. Not, yeah, last, yeah, last semester. So the, the notion of sacrament, it, that's a word we have not used in Churches of Christ very much. Uh, in high churches, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Anglican, that's a very common term. And a sacrament is simply something that's ordinary, something physical, that becomes a channel of extraordinary grace. So think about the waters of baptism. What could be more ordinary than water? But the water becomes a channel of divine grace. Think about the bread and the wine that we partake of and we take communion. What could be more ordinary than that bread and the wine? But it becomes a channel of divine grace. And there's a real sense in which many things that we think to be simply mundane can become sacraments for us. For example, 
this room. Before we came into this room, this room was simply the floor, ceiling, walls, chairs, what could be more ordinary. But we have come into this room, and in a real sense, this room becomes sacramental. It facilitates the divine grace that we're sharing with one another. So Jan is going to share another story with you about uh, the beauty and the grace-carrying possibilities of the ordinary dimensions of our lives. Most of the time, this is called wonder and witness in ordinary time. Most of the time when I'm asked to speak at a lectureship or a retreat or a class, I speak about story. Even when I say it's going to be about something else, it ends up being about story. I've written stories of my own. I've told other people's stories. I've found stories in books and in newspapers and in pictures and in letters and in diaries and in hospital rooms and in my own garden. I've dwelled upon the stories found in the book of Acts, and I have delighted in stating that the end of Acts is not the end of the story. We're not part of the canon, but we are part of the story. And thus, it is both our pleasure and our responsibility to tell our stories to each other as we walk along through the kingdom. Immediately after September 11, 2001, I found myself with a gigantic writer's block. It spilled over into 2002. It wasn't that there was nothing to write about. It that there was too much to write about. How could I decide which stories should be told? And how could I find the words to frame the stories? How could I honor and not diminish what I had seen? And how could I write about anything else? Wasn't everything else simply too mundane? The images of strangers and heroes, of weeping and courage and pain, bombarded my brain and my heart, but still I could not write. I thumbed through a little stack of stories I had written for other days, for other occasions, and I was struck by the ordinariness of many of my stories. Yes, I had written about life and death, and loss, and celebration, and community. But I was struck by the very simple, often homely metaphors that I had used to frame these stories. A softball game, an ugly little stucco house, a bottle of mucilage, a bird on a deck. Somehow they seemed unworthy of the year 2001. They seemed so ordinary. I had a similar reaction in the aftermath of the Asian tsunami in 2004, followed by the deadly hurricanes Katrina and Rita in 2005. The cataclysmic forces transformed the familiar into the unfamiliar, took the settled and unsettled it, took the deeply rooted and uprooted it. Dry became wet. Seemingly solid structures were shattered. Boats were tossed high into trees, caught in the branches like flimsy kites. Families were scattered by wind and water and general chaos. And though the personal stories poured from our newspapers and television screens, 
we witnessed only a minuscule fraction of the actual upheaval and misery and loss, as well as the remarkable resilience and hope and faithfulness that also emerged from the rubble. And once again, I am haunted by the ordinariness of my response, the ordinariness and inadequacy of my stories. But the word ordinary has become a touchstone for me. Because the liturgical calendar is not a part of our heritage within the Churches of Christ, most of us have largely missed out on the real sense of the seasons of our faith story. We know Christmas, but ignore Advent. The weeks that tell the stories moving us toward Christmas. We know Easter, but we ignore the Lenten period of preparation for Easter, the telling and even reenactment of the stories of Jesus' last weeks on earth. We know Pentecost, but most of us know nothing of the six months of the liturgical calendar that fall after Easter and end just before Advent. This period is called ordinary time. It is a time of hearing stories for the journey, stories of people learning what it means to be a people of faith. It is a time for living into our baptism. In a small book on Celtic Christianity, Benedictine monk Timothy Joyce traced the disappearance of many of the Celtic influences on the Christian church when Roman Catholicism became the dominant voice of the church in the British Isles. In particular, he pointed to the loss of appreciation for the creation itself. The Celts, who once populated much of this, whoops, much of the, I'm missing a page, just a minute. Hmm. Well, it's gone. See if it got put at the back. You didn't never let Richard have your notes. Oh man. <laughs> I tell you, I had this so organized, I thought. Uh, well, it's not there. Um, <clears throat> Well, I'm going to tell you about something else then. In today's Mennonite homes, you will find a large tome in the bookcase or on the coffee table right beside the Bible. It is called the Barter's Mirror, and it contains the first-hand contemporary accounts of over 4,000 Anabaptists who gave their lives for the Christian faith. Today's Mennonites know the biblical story. They also know the 16th century story. They are well acquainted with the cost of discipleship. It is their family story. It is their faith story. Because we are a story-formed community, we need, as an act of hospitality, to entrust the stories of our pilgrimage with others and invite both strangers and fellow pilgrims to share their stories with us. I should know your story, and I should freely share my own. In Barry Lopez's book, Crow and Weasel, Badger said, remember only this one thing, 
The stories people tell have a way of taking care of them. If stories come to you, care for them and learn to give them away where they are needed. Sometimes a person needs a story more than food to stay alive. <clears throat> that is why we put these stories in each other's memory. This is how people care for themselves. And my apologies. Oh. I don't know what was on that yeah. other page. <laughs> <laughs> So still continuing with this idea of sacrament, and we, we can think, the, the class that Jan and I teach, so we walk into the classroom at Lipscomb, and it's a room much smaller than this, and we have kind of a conference table, and I'm always struck every time we walk into that room, there are maybe 20, 22 chairs around a table, and it's just a very ordinary room, and then the students come into the room. And they sit down, and they begin to share their stories. That's what we do in this class. We, they write their stories, and they share them all semester long. And that room is transformed. <coughs> the next story Jan is going to share with you is about a church building. All of you grew up in a church building. I'm sure you have memories of where you grew up, the building. You have memories of the smells and the, the way it looked and what it was like going to Sunday school class, and how those, that community, that building shaped and formed you. So we're still back to this, this idea of sacrament, something ordinary becoming a vehicle of grace into our lives. A trip back to Sherman Street. Most of my earliest memories of church are contained within a square, solid, soft red Colorado stone building in South Denver, Colorado. My family moved to Denver from Texas in January of 1949. We were a family of six, my father Cecil, my mother Mary, my three sisters Dana, age 12, Marilyn, almost nine, Sarah, age three, and me, Janice just turned six. My father had been hired as the pulpit minister of the Sherman Street Church of Christ, now known as University Church of Christ. It was a wonderful, warm fellowship. I basked in it until midway through my 13th year when we moved to Chicago. I especially remember the singing. We loved to sing. We sang from Great Songs of the Church, number two, almost from cover to cover. Marvin Crow, father of Gail Crow, and Buren Carr were the usual song leaders. Marvin seemed to lead from the first half of the book and Buren from the second half. There were few hymns that we did not know. Sherman Street was considered the mother church of the 12 Denver congregations, and a wonderful fellowship existed among them. There were monthly singings where we spent a Sunday afternoon lifting our voices in praise. We attended each other's gospel meetings. We cooperated on annual lectureship. We went to each other's vacation Bible schools. In short, we knew each other, and we loved this special fellowship. I remember my Sunday school teacher, Mary Ward. Some of you know her, knew her son, Dale Ward. Even decades later, I find myself in awe of the creative and loving way that she took us through the Bible. I remember her flannel graph stories, her sandbox presentations, her expectation that we would know our memory verses, 
and the chart that hung near the door with a star for every Sunday we had been present and an extra star if we had known our memory verse. I still have the little white New Testament that she presented to me for perfect attendance. Another wonderful tradition was our monthly fellowship dinners held in the basement of the church or in warm weather in nearby Washington Park. There were many wonderful cooks, most of them our mothers. We were served a lavish layout of fried chicken, potato salad, and layer cakes, fruit pies, and cobblers. We ate, we sang familiar hymns, we played games. In short, we loved being together. In warmer weather, the children gathered after church in the grassy lawn on one side of the building. We hung upside down and swung on our sturdy little legs from a porch railing. We played tag. We smashed small black and red striped beetles that made an annual appearance on the red stone walls. I can still remember where certain people sat week in and week out. The pews were divided into thirds. The center third was at least twice the width of the side pews. When we were young, we sat with mother on one of the shorter left-hand pews near the front. Across the aisle would be Marvin and Violet Crow with their children. Marvin needed easy access to the pulpit area in order to lead the singing. At the other end of the same pew sat Buren and Lois Carr. Buren also needed easy access to the pulpit area on Sundays when he led the singing. <coughs> There were other beloved members scattered in the pews behind them. The numerous wards and the carters. Fanny Ward, the matriarch of the Ward clan, was of special fascination to those of us who were young, for she didn't seem to carry a purse. She reached into her ample bosom to pull out eyeglasses, contribution, and handkerchiefs. <laughs> Sister Dempster usually sat right behind her. She was a mystery to me, for I cannot ever remember seeing her smile. Aunt Maggie Ryland was a tiny woman who lived alone in a small house near the church. She mowed her postage stamp front yard on her hands and knees with garden shears. And most amazingly, at the age of perhaps 80, she could still do a complete backbend. <laughs> My sister Sarah named a beloved teddy bear Maggie in her honor. <clears throat> Alberta Jackson, a single woman, usually sat right behind us on Wednesday nights. Wednesday after Wednesday, she chastised me for my dirty elbows and insisted that I go to the restroom before the service began to make myself presentable. Alberta never seemed to understand that my elbows were covered with ink from the pages of the Denver Post, an evening paper. I was always an avid reader of newspapers, but was challenged by their size. I solved this by laying the paper flat on the floor and then lying prone to read. First, the ominous Korean War headlines, and finally, the beloved comic strip page, thus, the inky elbows. <laughs> This past November, my husband Richard and I, along with my sister Marilyn and her husband Jim, spent an afternoon exploring old haunts. We drove by our schools, the various houses we had lived in, and the Eugene Field Library on the edge of Washington Park. But the highlight of our afternoon was our trip to 125 South Sherman. 
We had been told that the building had been sold to another church group when Sherman Street moved to a new building on University Boulevard. In time, they too sold the building. In fact, Sherman Street Church of Christ had purchased the building from another church years before our time. I'm, guess, I'm guessing Methodist because of its rather sturdy, no-nonsense exterior. We half expected to drive down the street and find an empty lot or a replacement building. We found that it was still a residential street, still filled with charming houses, both large and small, many from the turn of the century. And best of all, the building was still there. Little had seemed to change, though the sign that used to stand near the front sidewalk proclaiming Sherman Street Church of Christ, Cecil N. Wright Minister, no longer stood there. Instead, we were soon met by a young woman, Mariah Elhart, on one of its two front porches. Mariah and her two magnificent labs were just heading out for a walk. We told her who we were and why we were there, and she graciously invited us in. The dogs offered no reluctance to our unexpected visit. Before we stepped inside, we were steeled for disappointment but instead we were flooded with memories. It seemed that we had flown back over more than a, a half century. The lovely stained glass windows that graced both the sides and the rear of the auditorium were still in place. It no longer seemed like a sanctuary, but it still held echoes of an earlier presence. The pews were gone, the pulpit was gone, the red carpeted aisles were gone, the baptistry with its beautiful painting by Blanche Perry of the Jordan River and a cloud-filled sky graced by a dove was gone. But sacred memories still filled the space. Amazingly enough, it was now a lovely photography gallery and, irony of ironies, a dance studio. <laughs> Quite a transformation. Mariah walked with us through the rest of the building. Our father's book line study was now a light-filled living space. And then we went down the stairs to what had been a dark, rather nondescript basement, complete with huge hot water boiler and a rather minuscule bare-bones kitchen. It was now transformed into another living space, filled with color and beautiful framed art photographs. Mariah was the photographer, a true artist, and she had transformed the space in such a way that the old bones showed through. But she had no understanding of the history of those rooms until she warmly invited us in. These spaces had welcomed countless other strangers through the years, and it seemed like the tradition was being carried on, though in ways we could never have imagined. Before we left, I stepped out onto the side porch near the rear of the building the side yard was still there. The railing at the top of the steps, the railing where we hung from our little browned and skinned knees was still there. I checked the stone walls for small black and red striped bugs, but the chilly winter weather had kept them away. But what was still there were the memories, memories of a lovely and loving community that nurtured me from ages six through 13. So, instead of 
closing today with the Apostles' Creed, I want to close by reading a prayer that's, yeah, that's 15 till. Yeah, yeah. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I think we better not. Yeah. Right? Some of us could stay. We could dismiss and then a few of us could stay. Well, I'll tell you what. Jan is going to read one more story. If you need to leave and go into service, you may. Uh, if you're willing to stay, shorter. it's shorter. It's what, about six minutes? Yes, yeah, and she'll read fast. And this one really does pick up on the idea of sacrament. In fact, she ends it with the, the idea of a grace note. What happens becomes a grace note. So we'll wait for folks who need to leave to leave, and then we'll shut the door and stay or in for a treat. Grace Notes for Easter Sunday, 2000. He came late on a lovely sun-drenched Easter afternoon. He came to our small garden in a rustle of wings and dry leaves. This is, takes place on the Pepperdine campus. I believe that he came from the base of the small grove of white trunk melaleucas that anchored the corner of our garden. But only my startled ears caught his arrival. And then I saw him a wee, downy, gray dove. He was perched on the top rail of the fence, sitting under an umbrella of slender, shimmering leaves. I laughed aloud, for he had chosen to sit a scant 12 inches behind a ceramic, life-size seagull that year in and year out anchors the corner fence post of our garden high above the Pacific Ocean. The dove sat perfectly still, striking precisely the same pose as the gull maintained, both looking out to the sea. The sight of a string of baby ducks waddling along behind their mother is a great delight, but the sight of a baby dove resting behind a ceramic seagull caused me to call Richard to come, to see, to laugh with me. I was fearful that the little dove would fly away when he heard me call. I was afraid that even the slightest movement would cause him to leave. My seagull was predictable, but the dove was pure serendipity and he seemed likely to leave at any moment. Richard and I stood a respectful distance and we laughed and laughed together. I wished for a picture, a way to remember and feebly capture the moment. I quietly left the deck and climbed the stairs to our bedroom only to find an empty camera before cell phones. Richard volunteered to drive down the hill to the drugstore to purchase more film, a 20 minute round trip at best. I knew the dove would be gone and only the seagull would remain posed. Richard left. I watched and watched. The dove sat still too and maintained his comical pose. And then at last, I heard the motor of our car whirring as it climbed the steep hill. The little bird seemed to hear it too, for he turned his downy head toward the street as if the sound was also familiar to his ears. Richard came to the back deck, loaded the film, extended the zoom, and turned on the flash in spite of my caution against it. I knew that we would be most fortunate indeed to have even one small picture before the clicking and flashing and movement frightened him away. Click, 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 flash, 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 six, seven, eight. On and on the little dove posed, seemingly unfazed by our frantic photography. After about an hour, we returned to our gardening tasks, trimming, raking, sprucing up for spring, and the little bird stayed. I did not stray far. He never left my consciousness or my peripheral vision. At last I found that I could not continue to work as if he were not there. 
He was so very present. How could I not be? So I found my own perch. I sat almost directly beneath him on the low deck. With my feet planted in the garden soil and gently scooped the fallen leaves from around the agapanthus that nestle at the base of the Melaleuca trees, the very place from which he had first appeared, and still he sat. He had been with us for almost two hours before I began to add worry to my wonder, and I began to talk to him, very quietly but very pointedly, to him. Little bird, I am so glad you are in my garden, but I am wondering where your mother is, and I wonder if you are thirsty or perhaps hungry, and which of these seeds and berries would be tasty and appropriate for such a small bird as you. And he, this little gray dove, began to sing. He had not made a single chirp, not a tiny peep, during his afternoon in our presence. But when I began to talk to him, he began to sing. And each time I stopped speaking, he stopped singing. We began and ended together. Once again, I called Richard, and he sang to Richard too. On and on he sang. And then suddenly, with the notes still spilling from his throat, he lifted his wings and soared to the branch of a large Japanese black pine. And there, among the extended branches, sat his mother, waiting. Had she been waiting and watching for all of the two hours? I do not know. But at the moment he took flight, she was waiting to receive him back into her care. I do not know why the baby dove came to our garden on Easter Sunday. But this I do know. I heard his pure young notes, sung from a neck stretched high and taut, and I believe, yes, I believe that he was somehow singing them to me or for me or with me, and I believe that I heard them because for one afternoon of my life I took the time to look at and love and finally listen to one of God's beautiful little birds, a small gray dove. Little Dove, you were a grace note to our Easter, a beautiful embellishment. It would have been a spectacular day without you, but you were the accompaniment. You brought the music. You were our grace note. Traveling mercies, little bird. God bless you, and God bless all of us on our journeys. So I'd like to end today by reading a prayer that really speaks to what we've been doing all semester. The prayer is called, The Grace to be Haunted, written by Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament scholar, in a book called, All to Heaven, Rooted in Earth. Here's the prayer. As we come to the text, we are mindful that we have not come first for others have been there before us. We do not come alone, for a cloud of witnesses awaits us. We give you thanks for the brave people of the text, prophets, apostles, saints, and martyrs. But if we pray slowly, we acknowledge before you that there hover around this text prophets, ancient and contemporary who have been truth-tellers at risk. Apostles, ancient and contemporary, sent with passion 
and courage undaunted. Saints, ancient and contemporary, who have been single-minded for the vision of this text. Martyrs, ancient and contemporary, who have witnessed and suffered and died for this particular truth. And we are their heirs, children, continuers, Give us freedom to be in their presence. Give us their innocence before the text. Most of all, give us the grace to be haunted by them. Haunted as they were by the text. Haunted to newness. We pray in the haunting name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.